Fixing bankrupt systems is just the beginning. April the 28th, 2009. Can we afford to fix our financial systems? The answer is yes. Indeed, we cannot afford not to fix them. The big question is rather how best to do so. But fixing the financial system while essential is also not enough. The International Monetary Fund's latest global financial stability report provides a cogent and sobering analysis of the state of the financial system. The staff have raised their estimates of the write-downs to close to $4.4 trillion. This is partly because the report includes estimates of write-downs on European and Japanese assets at $1,193 billion and $149 billion, respectively, and on emerging market assets held by banks in mature economies at $340 billion. It is also because write-downs on assets originating in the U.S. have jumped to $2,712 billion from $1,405 billion last October and a mere $945 billion last April. To put this in some context, the write-downs estimated by the IMF are equal to 37 years of official development assistance at its 2008 level. Estimated write-downs on U.S. and European assets largely held by institutions located in these regions, also come to 13% of the aggregate gross domestic product. The IMF estimates the additional equity requirements of the banks as well. It starts from total reported write-downs up to the end of 2008, which come to $510 billion in the U.S., $154 billion in the Eurozone, and $110 billion dollars in the UK. The capital raised to the end of 2008 is again $391 billion in the US, $243 billion in the Eurozone, and $110 billion in the UK. But the IMF also estimates additional write-downs in 2009 and 2010 at $550 billion in the US, $750 billion in the Eurozone, and $200 billion in the UK. Against this, it estimates net retained earnings at $300 billion in the US, $600 billion in the Eurozone, and $175 billion in the UK. The IMF points out that the ratio of total common equity to total assets, a measure investors burnt by more sophisticated risk-adjusted ratios increasingly trust, was 3.7% in the US at the end of 2008, but only 2.5% in the Eurozone and 2.1% in the UK. It concludes that the extra equity needed to reduce leverage to 17 to 1, or common equity to 6% of total assets, will be $500 billion in the US, $725 billion in the Eurozone, and $250 billion in the UK. For a 25 to 1 leverage, the required infusion would still be $275 billion in the U.S., $375 billion in the Eurozone, and $125 billion in the U.K. In current dire circumstances, the chances of raising such sums from markets are zero. Part of the reason is that they could still prove to be too little. After all, the IMF's estimates of the potential write-downs on U.S. assets alone have grown nearly threefold in just one year. It would not be surprising if they rose again. Yet these are not the only sums required. 
governments have so far provided up to $8,900 billion in financing for banks via lending facilities, asset purchase schemes and guarantees. But this is less than a third of their financing needs. On the assumption that deposits grow in line with nominal GDP, the IMF now estimates that the refinancing gap of the banks, the rollover of short-term wholesale funding plus maturing long-term debt, will rise from $20,700 billion in late 2008 to $25,600 billion in late 2011, or a little over 60% of their total assets. This looks like a recipe for huge shrinkage in balance sheets. Moreover, even these samples ignore the disappearance of securitized lending via the so-called shadow banking system, which was particularly important in the U.S. The IMF also provides new estimates of the ultimate fiscal costs of rescue efforts, at the high end of the U.S. and U.K. at 13% and 9% of GDP, respectively. Elsewhere, costs are far lower. These, happily, are affordable sums. Indeed, compared with the recession's impact on public debt, they look quite manageable. True costs are likely to end up higher, but the overwhelming likelihood remains that the fiscal costs of deep recessions are substantially greater than those of rescuing finance. Refusing to rescue financial systems because it looks too expensive is a classic case of being penny-wise, pound-foolish. A better reason for refusing to bail out banks is its dire effect on incentives. The alternative must then be bankruptcy. Jeremy Bulow of Stanford University and Paul Klemper of Oxford University have advanced a scheme that would do this rather neatly. Valuable banking functions of each institution will be split off into a new bridge bank, leaving liabilities apart from deposits in the old bank. Creditors left behind will be given equity in the new bank. Governments could top up some creditors beyond this level without making all creditors whole, as now. Respectable opinion assumes that it will be best to provide full bailouts of creditors in all systemically important institutions. The rationale for this is that it is the only way to eliminate further panic. The objection is not the fiscal cost. It is that a limited number of large, complex and too-big-to-fail institutions would emerge. Their creditors would naturally believe they were lending to governments. This would surely be a recipe for yet bigger catastrophes in future years. Yet imposing large losses on creditors is indeed risky. It will probably have to be done simultaneously everywhere. Only after it was obvious that surviving banks were sound would anyone be willing to lend to them without guarantees. Even worse than this choice between grim alternatives is that the fact that the path to recovery is likely to be slow, whichever of them is chosen. As the latest World Economic Outlook notes in an important chapter, recessions that follow financial crises are unusually severe. So, too, are globally synchronized recessions. But now we are living through a globally synchronized recession that coincides with a huge financial crisis that emanates from the core countries of the world economy, particularly the U.S. This is a recipe for a long recession and a weak recovery. Whatever is done about the financial system, deleveraging is the order of the day. The U.K.'s position in this looks dire, but that of the U.S. looks quite bad too, even compared with that of Japan in the 1990s. Today, for better or worse, the authorities have decided to bail out their financial systems with taxpayers' money. 
almost all the affected countries should be able to afford to do this, at least on the IMF's numbers. So now, having made this fundamental decision to prevent bankruptcy, they must return their financial systems to health as swiftly as they possibly can. Even so, that will prove only to be a necessary, not a sufficient condition for a return to robust economic health. The overhang of debt makes deleveraging inevitable, but it has also hardly begun. Those who hope for a swift return to what they thought normality just two years ago are deluded.